0: All right, we will be continuing in Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount. Um, We got all the way down to verse 20 last week, but on your sheet, I kind of realized I should have wrote this a little bit differently. Um, It it says Matthew 5, 20 through 26, A. That A should not be there. It was late. I'm not sure what I was thinking. It should be Matthew chapter 5, verses 20 through 26, part 1. Not A, because A looks like we're going to A of The first half of verse 26. So it's part one. So you have to forgive me on that one. So we are going to start back in verse 20, which is where we left off, because what is going to happen in this part of his sermon is that he is going to uh, begin to explain the law. Now, we just last week we talked about meditating on the law, loving the law. The law is there to uh, show the holiness of God, show his character. Um, show us how fall, fallen we are, how short we come to comparison of that righteous standard of the law, and then to show what pleases God. And he, he, he's going to then exp- expand this next section by truly showing what the law is because it had been distorted a little bit by these Pharisees and some of the rabbis. So for us to really get an understanding and to, and to thrust us into these next uh, verses, we have to start in verse 20, and then I'll read down to verse 26. Um, But we probably won't speak on that a whole lot tonight, if that makes sense. But uh, you'll see as we start to unfold what we're meaning by this. So let's pick up in verse 20, and let's read down to verse 26. Here's what it says. It says, "'For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven.'" and there remember that your brother has something against you leave your offering there before the altar and go first be re- reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opportunity may not hand uh, your opponent excuse me may not hand you over to the judge and to the and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. So these are the words of our Lord, and He's going to address this commandment that they've all heard, you shall not commit murder. We've heard that, Ten Commandments, we know that, but He's going to really show you the true definition of what it's always meant, and we'll unpack this, but let's pray first. Father, we thank you for this time to come together. We thank you for the words that we've heard. We thank you that it is your word, it is your truth. And Lord, I pray that you would lead me into all truth, that you would give me the words to speak, God and just let us hear from heaven tonight. Lord, through the pages of sacred Scripture because that is how you speak to us. So Lord, we pray that you would give us ears to hear, and that you would prepare a heart to receive the truths that are in these verses. Lord, we love you. We thank you. And we thank you for what we've just heard, what we've just read. And we pray tonight, Lord, that we would understand it more than we ever have. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me draw your attention really quickly. Um, we talked about last week that in verse 17, he says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. We talked about how he's the fulfillment of the law and he's fulfillment of the prophets. And I want to just draw our attention really quickly, because I think this is an overlooked uh, part of the story in Matthew chapter 17. In Matthew chapter 17, we are uh, told of this uh, episode that occurs on the mountain where he is transfigured where he goes up and uh, with Peter, James, and John, and he leads him up on a high mountain, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. So he's just told him them that he is going to have to suffer, and now he goes up to the mountain with these individuals, and he becomes um, transfigured, if you will. It's he he unveils himself just momentarily and and he begins to show them who he is. Even that is in a veiled sense because they couldn't see his true glory or they would die. But he begins to unveil himself a little bit and you see the scripture tells us his face shone like the sun, his garments became white as light and we're gonna see here a little bit later in verse six that they fell down to their face and they were terrified because this voice from heaven comes and it's the father. and He says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. But there's two mysterious, if you will, people that show up with uh, him on this mountain. And it is Elijah and it is Moses. You've heard this. You know that it's Moses and you know it's Elijah. And maybe you've wondered, maybe you've not. Why is it these two people here with Christ on this mountain? Well, I think it very well fits into what we've just heard, that he says, I did not come to abolish or destroy the law. I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. Well, Moses would represent the the law. He was the one to whom the law came through, and it was that Mosaic covenant. We know that Moses is representing the law, and Elijah is representing the prophets. So here you have on this mountain, you have the law, you have the prophets represented in Moses and Elijah. And Peter says, should we build a tent here? Should we build booths for them so they can stay? And he says, no need. The fulfillment's here of the law and the prophets. And the father says, this is my beloved son to whom I'm well pleased. So I think that's an amazing little detail in that story that you see the fulfillment of that. It's pointing to Christ. He's the fulfillment of the law. He's the fulfillment of the prophets. And you see that here in Matthew chapter 17 in the the story of the transfiguration. Just wanted to share that with you. I didn't mention it last week. So if you ever come to that story, you will see that detail in there that seems small, but important. Okay, with that being said, let's go to verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. We have to remember that the righteousness of the scribes and the righteousness of the Pharisees was external. They were all about the show. They were all about the rituals. They were all about what people could see. And If you were to look inside them, which we're gonna read here later tonight, that on the outside, their actions may look good and it may look like it's pleasing to God. But if you were to peel off that external layer, what you would find would be hearts that were evil, wicked, unclean, unregenerate, full of poison, dead men's bones, etc. And what Jesus is gonna say is that that's not the righteousness that we're talking about. Jesus is gonna say that It's not the externals that is the most important thing. He's going to point us inwardly and tell us that it's the heart that is where he's looking. It is the inner man. It is from the heart that the desires and the motives come. And this is what he's going to teach in these coming up passages. Don't just look at the external because the external may fool you. God is looking at the heart. Their righteousness was all on the external, but Christ and God the Father and the Holy Spirit, they're all looking at the heart and the motives that are attached to the heart. And this isn't a New Testament thing. It's not like he's coming to these verses and saying, let me add to the law. He didn't say that. He's not changing the law. He's saying, let me tell you what the law has always meant And even in the Old Testament, God's looking at the heart. He's always looked at the heart. And there are verses that we're going to read here in a little bit from the Old Testament. That first group of verses are just Old Testament verses. There's more, but just Old Testament verses that you're going to hear that God's looking at the heart. God's looking inwardly. God is looking at the soul. And that's what the Pharisees were missing. And they thought they could fool people, and maybe they could fool God, because that's all that mattered, but God is looking inwardly. Do you remember the ending of John chapter 2? Before we get to the story of Nicodemus, and there was a man named Nicodemus. you remember what the verse is before that? He knew what was in man. It's always been the heart that he's looking for. And if your heart is right and pure, then your outside actions will follow. But you can have outside actions that look good to the world that come from wrong motives. God is looking at the heart and this is where this is going to take us. But I want to draw your attention to six different passages and they're scattered throughout and they're on your sheet here, but I want to bring you to a comparison, if you will. And you'll see what I mean here. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 and 22. You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Look how verse 22 starts. But I say to you that er everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. See, he's going to say, you've heard this, but I'm saying to you, he's not changing it. He's saying what you've been told has been distorted. And we're going to see this, that through... Through oral tradition, these rabbis, this rabbinic teaching was being passed down and it was being changed. It was being um, altered, if you will. The true meaning of the law and the true meaning of what it meant was so far from where it intended to be, where it started. And it was the oral traditions, this rabbinic tradition that was being passed down. And that is why he says, you've heard but I say. And he's going to do this six times in this little section of Scripture here. The next one we find is in verse 27. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her already has committed adultery with her in his own heart. Again, you see, they were looking at the external. They were saying, Well, look, as long as I don't commit the act externally, I'm righteous. And he says, no, no, no. Because out of the heart comes the motives. And their hearts were evil and wicked. And even though you just don't commit the act, if your heart is burning with lust, you're just as guilty. You see, this is what he's saying. They were looking at the externals, and God is going to say, I'm looking at the heart. Which is going to blow their mind and shake them to their core because they were doing everything for the outside. Why did they pray? To be seen by men. Why did they wear long flowing robes to look righteous and be well respected? You see, he's going to rock their world with what he's going to teach. But he's saying, I say. And what's also interesting to note here is that when we look into the Old Testament, think about what the prophets would say. If a prophet was speaking on behalf of God, he would say, God said, or God has spoken, or it is written. So now when Jesus comes and says, well, this is what you heard, but now I say to you, and then he tells the law, he's showing his deity again. He's saying, I'm telling you the law. I'm equal with the law. Actually, I've given the law. I'm above the law. Even in that statement, you've heard it said, but I say, that's a that's a claim to deity as he's the one who gave the law. And can tell us the true meaning. We find it in verse thirty-one. He says, "It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let her, let him give a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery." You've heard. I say, this is what he's going to do. You're going to find it in verse thirty-three. He's going to say the same thing about uh, making false vows. You're going to see it in verse 30, um, I said 38, or he's going to do it in 38. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I say, do not resist an evil person. Give the other cheek, if you will, and we find it in verse 43 as well. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He's claiming authority over the law. He's claiming authority. He's claiming deity. And he's come to set the record straight from how far it had been skewed from its true meaning. And they were also holding to what they called the traditions of the elders. There was an oral law or oral traditions that were passed down that people were holding on to. And again, it was distorted from the true meaning of the law. We find an example of this in Mark chapter 7. And we won't read the whole thing, but if you want to read it later, you will find Jesus calling them out on this. And over my Bible, over chapter 7 of Mark, it says followers of tradition. And he's going to tell them that they hold to the traditions of elders. They hold to traditions that are not of God. They're neglecting the command of God. You hold to the tradition of men. We find that in verse 8 of chapter 7. But what's important is what is right before that. And we'll quote this in a little bit. He's going to tell them that you follow the traditions of elders. You follow the oral tradition of man. You've neglected the law of God. You've con- neglected the command of God. And here's why. Look at the verse right above it in verse 6 and 7. It says, He said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, you hypocrites, as it is written, The people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the traditions of men. It had been skewed. Oral tradition, tradition had been passed down and it was wrong, it was incorrect. And they were holding to that tradition. They were holding to that oral rabbinic tradition that had been passed down more than the commandment of God. And you see in this verse, we see also he's looking at the heart. Not the externals, but the internals. And if your internal is right, the external will follow. This is what he's saying. You have heard, but I say to you. He's come to truly explain what these commands and the law was meant to be. So follow along with me here as we just go through verse by verse, reading Old Testament scriptures of God looking at the heart, even in the Old Testament, even in the Old Covenant. He's looking at the heart. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, he says this, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 9 says, As for you, my son Solomon... Know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. We see here he's, he's looking even at the intent and the motives of the heart as he's searching the heart. Jeremiah seventeen nine through 10 says the heart is more deceitful than all, all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. Again, you see the link between the heart and the deeds. Psalm 19, verse 14 says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Psalm 44, verse 21. Would not God find this out? for he knows the secrets of the heart. Psalm 51, verse 10, this repentant prayer of David says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And we go to the book of Proverbs in chapter 16, verse 2. It says, All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. Not just the action, but the motive behind Proverbs 21, verse 2 says this, Every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. I love verse 19 of chapter 27 of the book of Proverbs. As in water, face reflects face, so the heart of man reflects man. And in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 39, it says, Then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each according to all his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the heart of all the sons of men. And where we were just at in the book of Mark chapter seven, he read that, we read that he calls them out for following traditions and their heart is far away. And that is an Old Testament reference to Isaiah 29, verse 13, where he says, then the Lord said, because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lips, service but they remove their hearts far from me and their reverence for me consists of traditions learned by rote. You see a theme. This isn't something new that he's telling them. He's not saying, well, here comes a new covenant. So now God is now going to start looking at the heart. God has always looked at the heart. And we have examples that aren't, we didn't mention here, but you could see in the Old Testament that, that God was not pleased when they would go to the temple and they would offer sacrifices. They would go and they would offer their sacrifices. They would go through the motions. And he says, but I'm, your heart is not in this. Your heart is only doing it for your selfish gain or for fame or for whatever the reason may be. It's always been the heart. And this is what he's trying to teach us here. And what we can see from this as we begin to work down through this even more is that we see that the external actions can fool others, but not God. And we see this. We mention it all the time. There are people that will be in church Sunday morning. To the outside, it looks wonderful. They are in church. They've got their family in church. They've brought their friends to church. Everybody's in church. To the outside, the external looks good. It looks like you want to be there. It looks like you are on fire for God. You're dedicated for God. But you know what? There's going to be people that come to church on Sunday that don't want to be there. They're doing it because, again, we've mentioned it, they don't want to get a call. Where are you at? They're doing it because they've been told that that's the right thing to do. You want to be right for God? Show up to church. Maybe they, maybe they want to talk to their friends. They'll go talk to their friends. God knows the heart. There are going to be unconverted, unregenerate people that sit in the church service year after year after year, and the outside looks great, and it fools the people. But God knows the heart. This is what he's saying. You can't fool God. I can't fool God. He knows what you're thinking right now. He knows why you're here. He knows why I'm here. He knows why we do everything we do. Let us be mindful of that. The Pharisees were trying to fool everyone with their prayers and their wardrobe and their fancy words and the list goes on. But God knows their heart. He knew their heart. And He was not fooled. And see, the Pharisees were justifying themselves by the external actions. They were saying, well, This is what we do, so therefore we're right before God. But God says, no, that's not how it works. If you can do something and it be with the wrong motive, I'm not pleased with that. I'm not pleased with that. Your motives have to be good. And we've mentioned this before, that the Bible tells us that there's no one good. There's no one good. And and Paul brings that point home in Romans chapter 7, and he says that there's nothing good in me except for God. So how do we square that away with people that seem to do good deeds? Well, for something to be good, it has to meet a couple criteria. Criteria number one, it has to be in line with the commands and and what God has ordained in His Word. It has to be pleasing. We have to obey His commands, and it has to be in line with His Word. That's the first thing that has to, the requirement that has to be met for something to be good. However, the second part is where we truly see where the rubber meets the road. Because not only does it have to be in consistency with obedience to the commands of God, it has to be done with a motive pleasing to God. It has to be with a motive that is honoring God, for God and God alone. And that's what the Bible is going to say, that no one is good outside of Christ. There's nothing good in a human being that without God because... Without God, we're corrupt, we're evil. Without Him, we are not regenerate. Without Him, we don't have the Spirit living in us. And without Him, we would never do anything to honor God. So therefore, we have nothing good to offer. And we look at motives all the time. I've told this story before, and I think it's a wonderful story or a wonderful example. that The analogy goes, or the story goes, that there's a, an apartment complex on fire, and they're rescuing everybody and everybody's almost out except for word comes down that there's one kid that's still left up on the second or third floor. The building is on fire, there's not much time, and all of a sudden you see this guy and he runs back into the building. And everybody's like, "What? There he look at this. This guy is a true hero. He's going to save the day." And he runs back into the building and he comes out and he's got, he's got his arms full and he's, he's holding something and the, the smoke is beginning to clear and they think this man is a hero until they realize that he grabbed his personal belongings and left the kid behind to the world. He was going in looking like a hero, but his motives were all about himself. God knows the heart. We can do everything that externally looks good and churchy and religious to the world. God knows the soul. And no one that does not, anyone that does not have Christ, there's nothing good in them. And the only people that have any good in them is Christians that have been saved by the mercy and grace of God and God alone dwells in them because God alone is good. That's the only way that we can have any good deed because God is in us. And from our soul, we're doing things, one, that are in line with His Word, and two, to please Him. This is what they were doing. They were justifying themselves by the external actions. And they were also trying to justify themselves by the things they did not do. And this is where the Scripture really comes a hold. Because they would say, well, look at us. We're not like the tax collector. We don't do that. We don't go commit adultery? We've never committed adultery. But every second of their day, their hearts were burning with lust that every person, every woman that walked by. They were guilty of sin. See, they were justified by what they didn't do as well. They were justifying what they did externally, but they were also justifying themselves by what they didn't do. Well, we've never actually taken, you know, any kind of weapon and murdered anyone. So look at us. But every unclean person in their eyes, every Samaritan that walked by, every Gentile that walked by, their hearts burned with anger and hatred to them. They were guilty before God. God knows the motives of what we do, why we do them. And if we're not careful, we do the same thing. We justify ourselves by what we do and we justify ourselves by what we don't do. And we're really sometimes content with that. I didn't actually do that act But I thought evil thoughts the whole time. Just as guilty. Just as guilty. You see, God's standard is higher than the Pharisees. The Pharisees were good. Well, we just don't do it. But God says, don't do it, but I want to see the proper motives from inside. You've heard it said, but I say to you, He wants the heart to be pure. And the Pharisees, they're hypocritical all day long because their actions did not come from a pure heart. Turn with me briefly here in Matthew chapter 23. If you remember when we started the Beatitudes, we talked about the woe and the wheel. The woe is the cursing that God brings on or places on someone, and the the wheel or the blessedness is the blessing that He puts on. So it was either blessed or woe. And we are getting ready to see Jesus rebuke the Pharisees in the most comprehensive indictment towards them in the Bible we find in Matthew chapter 23. We won't read it all, but if you ever want to read, start in verse 1 of chapter 23 and look at what He says to them. But I want to draw our attention to verse number 25. Now remember what He's saying. It's... Not the external, it's the internal. And they were justifying their actions by the outward. They were justifying what they didn't do before these people. Look what he says. He knows that. Verse 25 starts out with some of the most terrifying words that a human being could ever have spoken upon them. Woe. Woe. Cursing. Not a blessing, but cursedness upon you. Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence you blind pharisee first clean the outside of the cup or the inside of the cup of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also woe to you scribes and pharisees hypocrites for you are like whitewashed tombs which on the outside appear beautiful but inside they are full of dead men's bones in all uncleanness. That's what he's saying to them. The people looked at the Pharisees as the religious elite, justifying themselves by their externals, what they did do, justifying but what they didn't do externally. But God says, woe, woe to you. The outside is about as smooth as it can be. On the surface, it looks good. But if you were to peel all that back, you would find sin and evil and dead men's bones and all uncleanness. God's looking at the heart. He is looking at the heart. Matthew chapter 6, we won't read it all, but chapter 6, 1 through 18, will be there in a few weeks. But we see how it begins. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Why were they giving? Why did they want to be seen? Why could the giving not be done in secret like it's supposed to be? Because their motives were not pure. They wanted everyone to see how much they were giving. They wanted to pray so people could see their external actions. Remember, these are the same ones that are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. They have the reward in full is what he's going to say. And that whole that whole verses there from chapter, or chapter 6, 1 through 18 down. He's going to tell you this. When you pray, you don't just stand out there and pronounce it and be there out in the street corner to be showy. Have the right motives to do what God has commanded us to do. He tells us when we fast that no one's supposed to know that you're fasting. There are people that don't worry, they'll know that they're fasting. You'll know that they're fasting, and you'll know how miserable they are they're fasting. Why? To be recognized by men? To see the religious actions they're doing that you're not? Again. God knows the motives. That's where it's at. You have heard it said, but I say to you. And then we have New Testament verses that also tell us that God is looking at the heart. Follow along with me here. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 6, Not by way of eye service, as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Matthew 9, verse 4, And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Think about that story. They're not saying anything. They're standing there and thinking evil thoughts. And to them, they're justifying themselves by what they're not doing. Standing there, being quiet, holding their tongue. They're doing really well. Righteous act. God says, what are you thinking evil in your hearts for? It's not just the external, it's the internal. And God knows our hearts. Matthew chapter 15, verse 8. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Hypocrites, apostates, false profession of salvation. This is, they can all fit in this group. Go a little bit further down in chapter 15, verse 18 through 20. But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. And those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornication, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. There's some of the the religious rules that they were in place. You must wash your hands. How do you not wash your hands? How can you be so unclean? And he says, listen, listen to me. We're looking inwardly. And what the heart is made of, the motives will follow. And those motives cannot fool God. Matthew 22, verse 37 says, And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul with all your mind. Again, he's focusing, zeroing in on the heart. Luke 6, 45, the good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. And the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. And even in the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 2, verse 23, we see a mention of him looking at the heart. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds you'll notice how he links the reward of deeds to the intent of the heart and mind. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5 says, Therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. It's the motive of the heart. It's always been the heart. He's not telling them anything new. He's telling them the way it should be and not the way that they've made it. Luke 16, verse 15. I think this is an important one. You know, we've we've talked recently about how we compare ourselves to other people. I think Perry's mentioned it as well and we've talked about it that if we compare ourselves with other people, we're going to look good sometimes, We're going to look fair sometimes. Sometimes we're going to look bad. But that's not the standard to which we compare. And it's not the external actions that we're to compare. Because you may look at someone and say, look at what they're doing. But inside they may be dead men's bones. They may be doing it for the honor of other people. They may be doing it for reasons that are not godly. But only God knows. But it starts in the heart. Look what he says here in Luke 16, verse 15. He said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. That hits home, doesn't it? That God looks at our hearts. It's not just I did do that or I didn't do that. It's why did you do that or why didn't you do that? It goes deeper. Because out of a heart that's been changed, you will want to please God and your motives will be to honor Him, to bring glory to Him, to obey Him because it's all about Him. It's not about being seen. It's not about receiving the pats on the back from other people. It's not so the community can think you look good. It cannot be so uh, everybody thinks that you are just on fire. That's not why we do what we do. We do what we do at the most basic level because our hearts are changed and we want to please God from the heart. If you love me, you'll keep my commands. Because you love Him. Is that why you obey the Bible? Because you love Him? Because you want to bring Him glory? It comes from the heart. And when you put this on display and you look at what the Pharisees were doing and what God is trying to teach, we look at them and say, how could you? Look at you. Who do you think you are? But I bet if we were all really really honest tonight, there's been things that we have done or did not do for absolutely selfish motives. And let us not be comfortable like they were to say, well, I didn't murder anyone. Have you ever thought evil about someone in your heart? you ever hated someone in your heart? That displeases God too. And the list is going to go and He's going to give example after example. But again, that's why we had to start with unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven because they were external. God is looking at the heart. And because He knows the heart, that means that nothing passes his eyes. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. And because he knows the heart, the perfect judgment will take place. Look what it says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12-13. through 13. For the word of God, and, and listen, we can attest to this verse right here. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge, what? What does it judge? The actions, the thoughts, and the intentions of the heart. I don't know if you've heard me say this at all tonight, but God's looking at the heart. God's looking at the motive of why you do or don't do something. It's not just enough to say, I didn't do it, and your heart have the wrong motive for not doing it. And it's not good enough to say, well, you know, I didn't do it. That's good enough. I did do it. That's good enough. That's what the Pharisees were doing. It displeased God and it displeases displeases Him when they did it and displeases Him when we do it. And we've all been there, haven't we? Honestly, we have. We justify so much. But you see, here's how it's practical. We say, well, I didn't do it, but in my heart I wanted to do it. In my heart I yearned for that. In my heart I didn't have the right motive. Do you know what the prayer needs to be? Not thank you, God, that I didn't do it. It should be, God, change my soul. I mean, let's get down to the core of the problem. And whatever is in my heart that is there, that is not submitting to you and your law and your word, let it be gone tonight by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's get down to the root of the matter. That's where we have to start. The motive of why we do it and if the heart is changed, if the motive is right, if the motive is to please God, guess what's going to happen? The right actions are going to follow. That's the way that it's set up. We are not saved by works, but our works show that we have been saved. We have been called unto good works, is what Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says. We're not saved by works, but we're saved unto good works. It's what James is going to tell us. Listen, you have to have, you have to live the life of a Christian. Your fruits have to match. You'll know them by the fruits on the tree, you'll know them by their actions. But you also, God knows by the heart. Now, we just read that he's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. But look what happens right after that in verse 13. And there is no creature hidden from his sight but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. This is a sobering message coming out of the lips of our Lord, isn't it? Can you imagine the Pharisees that had gathered to hear this sermon? He goes up, he begins to teach his disciples, but we're going to get um, understanding later that there's going to be a crowd that has gathered and they're going, to tell, they're going to come and they're going to say that you, we have never heard anybody teach like this. We've never heard anything like this because you are teaching with authority, not like the Pharisees. Can you imagine what, what is the mood at that place on that day when this sermon is being preached? Maybe some of the Pharisees are gathering around and maybe they just hear these words. Jesus looking at his disciples. Pharisees in the background with all their fancy clothes. And here's what they hear. For I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. I bet you if they were there, some people started looking at them. What's your reaction to that? Can you imagine hearing those words? Can you imagine the people that had gathered that thought the Pharisees were the religious elite and they were the ones to look up to? And hearing it said to them that unless your righteousness surpasses them, you will not enter heaven. What a day this was. He is shaking things up. He is turning the world upside down. And you know what he's telling them? That the righteousness that the scribes and Pharisees hold to is merely external. And their heart is full of wickedness and evil and dead men's bones. That's interesting, isn't it? That we're dead in sin before Christ. And it says that they're full of dead men's bones. Spiritually dead. But for those whose righteousness does, Exceed the head of the Pharisees, it will be inward. It will be from a pure heart, a changed heart, a heart that does the will of God from good intentions, from good motives to honor and please God in all they do. And it doesn't matter if they get recognition for it one time by one person. You see, this is why we spent this whole time, verse after verse, Just explaining that God is looking at the heart because when we come back next week and we go into verse 21, that says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit murder and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. When you hear that, and then he says, but I tell you, whoever is angry with his brother shall be guilty. You will know that he's not changing the law, but he's saying this is the true intent and it comes down to the motive of the heart. That gives us a lot to think about and a lot to pray about, doesn't it? Do you remember in the scripture where it says, search me, oh God, try me. If there's any way in me that is not right, then purify me. If we're not careful as Christians, we get complacent, we get a false sense of security, that all that matters is the externals. Well, the Pharisees found out that that's not what it's all about. Maybe that's the prayer this week. God, examine my motives. Examine why I pray. Examine why I come to church. Examine why I give. Examine why I help people out. Examine every part of me. And God, I pray that if there's one area in my life that is not the proper motive, I pray that you would convict me and change me. Maybe that's the prayer this week. What am I doing that does not have the right motive? And then we could also say, what am I not doing that has equally the same Wrong motive. Because both of those apply. That's sobering. God knows the heart. We'll end with this. I thought this was a very powerful statement and I think it speaks a lot to what is being said tonight. God is concerned about who you really are as opposed to what you appear to be. That's what he's looking at. He's concerned about who you really are from the the innermost being of yourself. God knows what's in man because he looks at the heart. But here's the good news those whose righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees are those whose hearts have been born again. That's internal. When your heart is born again and the old heart has been removed, the heart of stone has been replaced by the heart of flesh. And He's raised you from death to life. And as Ephesians says, it says, by grace you have been saved, not by works, so that we do not boast. We do not boast in our works for ourselves. We do not boast in anything for ourselves. Like Paul says, our boasting is in Christ. And here's what he says right after that. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. That as a born-again Christian, that we are to walk with a new heart. Our heart is supposed to be chasing God, obeying God, seeking God, and that is our motives. But we must be careful because we can fall and we can trip up and we can get skewed and we can start to have wrong motives. And that's what we need to examine tonight. What are our motives, our intentions of the heart as they are being put into actions? Again, you can fool me. You can fool yourself. You can fool everyone. You can't fool God. And like we've said so many times, the righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees is one that is of Christ. His righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees and those who believe that righteousness is imputed you know that but we've also been created unto good works so let us do the externals that which he's called us to do but do not let us think that get a false sense of security that it is just the externals because unbelievers true uh, tr- people that are not truly saved can do the externals the externals must be coupled From a heart that's pure and has the right motives. And I think that I could sum this up in one small sentence tonight God looks at the heart, God looks at the motives. Let us be mindful. Let us search our souls. And let us not be hypocrites in anything that we do. But in everything we do, let it please the only one that matters, both inwardly and outwardly. And that is God, to whom goes all the glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word tonight, Lord. It's challenging. It is tough, but it is words that we need to hear. It is truth upon truth, Lord. It is time that we as Christians begin to examine ourselves and not get complacent in just the actions that we do, but let us begin to examine why we do them, and let us also be, begin to examine and of why we don't do certain things. And let us never be comfortable as that being a justification before you, God, because you look at the heart, you look inwardly. Father, and we pray that you would convict our souls tonight of the areas in our life that we need changed. Lord, convict us where we fall short. Convict us, Lord, of our selfishness and our pride and trying to please others and try to look good before others. God, we're guilty of that. So, Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit would come and open our souls and open our eyes and convict us in these areas. And, Father, let us know that we are to live a life that's pleasing to you. We are to do things. We are to do external things. But, Lord, let them be coupled with the true motives from the heart Lord, because we as believers have a new heart. We have a heart that's been brought to life. It is a heart that, the, that you dwell in, Father. It is a heart that you have changed. It's the heart that is beating for you. And Lord, we pray that we would never be found to be hypocrites. That when you began to examine us, that the outside would match the inside as we are living in obedience to you, not with just lip service, not with just actions, but from our hearts with the proper motives and intentions. And Father, before we close, we want to thank you, Lord, that you come to us in our regeneration and you changed our intentions and our inclinations of our soul to, for the first time, Lord, give us a desire to do the things that are pleasing to you because we love you. So Lord, let us give great attention to these verses. And Lord, as we continue through this sermon that you gave in the coming up weeks, Lord, let us understand the seriousness. Let us understand the context. And let us know that these words that were spoken 2,000 years ago to these men are just as applicable to us today. And let us Take heed as such and give us ears to hear. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.